0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And uh, so we're going to read Hosea chapter 11, and we will read the first nine verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now, the prophet Hosea was active during the 8th century B.C., and at this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Hosea's prophecies were particularly directed to Israel, which was also known as Ephraim because that was the name of the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom. And what was unusual about Hosea's prophetic message is that he wasn't at first sort of just speaking his prophecies. I was going to say that he was acting them out but it would be more accurate to say that he was living them out. At the beginning of the book of Hosea we read that God told Hosea to marry a woman called Goma but God told Hosea from the outset that Goma would be an unfaithful wife that she would commit adultery Now imagine the the emotional cost of being obedient to God by marrying somebody you know is going to betray you. This was what Hosea had to do to live out the prophecies that God had. And sure enough, Gomer had at least one affair and two children were born as a result of her adultery. Eventually, she left Hosea. She left him and went away with another man. And in the culture of that time, the failure of his marriage and the fact that his wife had betrayed him and left him would have been a shameful thing for Hosea, not just personally and emotionally painful and hurtful thing, but also a public humiliation a public shaming. But even more shame was to come for him because God then told Hosea to go back to his unfaithful, unrepentant wife and to take her back. And not only that, but by this point, Gomer had been led into a lot of trouble and difficulty. She was some sort of bond servant or slave, so her own sort of fortunes had fallen to the point where she had had to sell herself into some form of slavery. Which meant that Hosea had to go and pay money. Had to go to the person who owned Gomer and hand over money in order to buy her freedom before he could take her back as his wife. But at this point, Hosea turned to the people who had doubtless been gossiping about all of these scandalous events. Perhaps some had been laughing at his humiliation. Perhaps others had pitied him and felt sorry for him. But he turned to these people and delivered the shocking message that these events that they had so enjoyed watching, like people today poring over the latest scandal in the tabloids, These events were, in fact, a reenactment of what the people themselves were doing at that very moment. He told them that Gomer represented the nation of Israel, that she represented them. A people who, like her, had betrayed their husband, which is God, and were walking into slavery by pursuing other gods, and worshipping idols. The image of the betrayal of a marriage was used here to describe what happens when people turn away from God to worship idols. It's like one party in a marriage making a conscious decision to walk away from the commitment and the promises that they've made to the other party, the other party who still loves them, who's still committed to them, in order to give themselves to somebody else. Now, at first glance, if we were to translate this into today and today's circumstances, at first glance, we might say, well, this is a picture of a nation rejecting God, worshipping idols. It's a picture also of secular Britain today. The Goma represents all those who are not Christians, all those who have given themselves either to other religions or to the worship of secular idols in our culture but the sobering truth is that this is not a picture of the non-christian world it is for today a picture of what can happen to the church because what we have here is not a people who are aliens and strangers to God a people who have never worshipped God a people who have always rejected God What we have is a picture of a people who are in a covenant of love with God. They're his people. They identify themselves as his people. But they have chosen to turn away from that covenant and to worship idols. So one of the messages of the book of Hosea for us is that it serves as a warning. It is warning us of where we could go if we do not guard and examine our hearts, it's a warning to us of the temptations that we face. Because why were God's people abandoning him in order to worship idols? Why had Israel gone that way? The principal idol that was worshipped at this time was the idol Baal. Baal was a fertility god. Baal was thought to be the one who would bring the rain, to make the land fertile, to cause the crops to grow. And in an agricultural economy, that harvest was vital. That harvest, on the most basic level, was the difference between comfort and starvation. But good harvests were more than just the difference between life and death. A good harvest was also the pathway to prosperity through having a surplus that you could sell to start making money. So this was also the source of prosperity, the source of potential riches. And the choice for the people of Israel was the same as the choice for us, the choice that we face again and again. Do I trust God to provide all I need? Or do I offer my heart to somebody or something else because I think that they will do that? Whether this is, do I give my heart to something that I think is going to make me rich? Do I give my heart to riches thinking that they will bring me satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment in my life? Do I give my heart to to relationships with people? do I give my heart to sexual promiscuity because I think that is going to bring me happiness and fulfillment. So, Israel saw the people around them worshipping Baal. And maybe those people were doing well, maybe those tribes and nations around them seemed to be prospering. And so Israel thought, well, Just to be sure, then, we'd better worship Baal as well. So they decided to join them, just as we might see neighbors, friends, other family members who do not know God, apparently prospering, doing well. And you think, well, they, they seem really fulfilled. They seem really happy. They seem very successful. Maybe I should start living the way they live, following their lifestyle. And another factor that was at work was that Israel was surrounded by potentially hostile or actively hostile neighbors. And in particular at this time, the growing Assyrian empire off in the east that was advancing and swallowing up other countries, heading in Israel's direction. And so they might have thought that, well, perhaps If we adopt their culture, if we adopt their practices, if we blend in with them, perhaps then they'll think we're all right and they'll leave us alone. And they won't be hostile to us. And so we'll be able to live at peace if we just compromise on these things and live the way that they live. And in the same way, the church is under pressure to conform to the culture around it. We can feel that pressure in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families. And it's the pressure to conform, the pressure to accept the culture that is around us. And it can be easy for the church then to think, well, look, we we want people to join us. We want people to like us, so they'll want to come into our meetings and be a part of us and worship with us. So perhaps then really we should be compromising a bit more. We should be more like them, because if we look like them, then they'll like us. Obviously, we'll, we'll still carry on. We'll, we'll still sing our songs. We'll still have our meetings. We'll still say our prayers. But we'll also adopt and take on the, the, the culture in which we live. And Israel was doing that. They were still offering the sacrifices, going to the festivals, still observing all the practices of the old covenant. But at the same time, they would also be adopting the practices of the cultures around them. And that's what they were doing. So Hosea offers a warning to us not to fall into that temptation in the way that Israel had done. In our passage, God says that the people had become bent on turning away from him. They were doing it repeatedly, again and again. In an earlier chapter, it says that their love for God had become like the morning mist and the morning dew, something that just doesn't last. It's there, but it's very quickly gone. It just evaporates. So we come to chapter 11. Because how does God respond to this? How does he behave towards his people when they turn away from him and worship idols? When their love for him has become as frail as the morning mist? Well, We find the answer at the end of the passage. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come in wrath. But no, God says, I will not come in wrath. I mean, you would expect any sentence that begins, I am the Holy One in your midst, would then go on to say, I will come in wrath. That's what we expect. But God had begun by saying, I am God and not a man. And so often we project our our human attitudes and behavior onto God. God. And we assume that he would behave in the way that we would. Or perhaps we assume that he will behave in the way that somebody else has behaved to us. When we have offended them. So in a situation where God has been betrayed and rejected and treated unfairly by people he loves, we expect him to react in a way that maybe we would instinctively react to to want punishment, to want revenge, to have nothing more to do with the person who has betrayed him. But God says, I will not come in wrath, because I am God and not a man. My heart is different. And indeed, in the previous verse, God has given us an amazing glimpse into his heart. In verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And we find those same extraordinary loving sentiments expressed in other places too. In Jeremiah 31, another book of prophecies written to a people who are in active rebellion to God, a people who have rejected him. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 20, God says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Do you know that God's heart yearns for you? This is the heart of God for his people. Not only that, but this is the heart of God for his people even when they've rejected him, when they're bowing down to worship idols. Maybe when we're here worshipping God together, In these situations, perhaps it's easy for us to agree that God would call us his darling child when everything's going well and we're feeling really close to him. But in those times when we've stumbled, when we've gone down the wrong path, just those times when we've allowed our hearts to grow colder, more distant, Do we believe then that God's compassion for us continues to be warm and tender? That his heart yearns for us? This tender and loving heart of God is embodied in the person of Jesus. Jesus has compassion when he sees the crowds, not because the crowds are tremendously righteous and holy. No, he has compassion on them because they're pretty much the opposite, because they're lost, they've gone astray. So his heart is moved with compassion to his people. Jesus is drawn to the sick and the weak. Paul, writing to the Romans, said that where sin increased, grace increased even more in those times when we stumble and go astray. In those times when we're so aware of our own weakness, the heart of Christ is drawn even more to us. The prophecies of Hosea go on to make it clear that God brings discipline to his people when they go astray. But even the discipline of God that comes in those times is a sign of his love for us. It is the sign of the love of a father. And it is for the purpose of bringing us back into relationship with him. It is to bless. But why is the heart of God so filled with compassion towards these people who have turned away from him? Why doesn't he show wrath to them? Why doesn't he give them up? The answer is relevant because it is an answer that also applies to us. We see the answer in the first verse of our passage. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. At the very beginning of the passage, God shows us that Israel are his. They're his child, they're his son, they're his people. And that is why in verse 8, God says, how can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those two places were cities that were destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. Well, Israel was sinning too. Israel was no better in their behavior, in the things that they were doing, than these places that God had destroyed. But Israel were his They were his people. And so God's heart recoiled at the very thought of treating Israel in the same way as those other places. The difference is, they're his. A man called Thomas Goodwin was a 17th century preacher and writer. And in... One but one of his books, he used the law court to illustrate this particular point. He wrote, We see that advocates and attorneys who plead for others, although that they have no share in the estate for which they plead, no title to or interest therein, yet when they have undertaken a client's cause, how diligent they will be to promote and carry it for that their client simply because it is their office and the duty of their place. How much more would their diligence be whetted if the lands and estates they sue for were their own, or a purchase of theirs for their wives or children? Now such is the pardoning of our sins, the salvation of our souls, and the conforming of our hearts unto Christ. These are the purchase of Christ's blood, And whilst he is exercised in promoting these, he does good to his own child and spouse, which is, in effect, doing good to himself. So as he says, if the barrister in the court is going to diligently argue for and defend and plead the case of their client simply because they're being paid to do so, how much more would they defend and plead the cause of their own wife, of their own child, of their own family. Because as far as they're concerned, I'm doing it for my, as much for myself, because this is my own flesh and blood. So as he says there, Jesus has purchased us through the shedding of his own blood. We are his And so Jesus will plead our case before the throne of his Father because we are his. And the Bible uses at least three different pictures to show us how we are his. Firstly, as we've just seen, it's because we're his children. We are his because we are his children. We are part of his family. And this is what we've seen in our passage and in that verse in Jeremiah. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? And Paul writes in Ephesians, we have been adopted as sons into God's family. So these words spoken in Jeremiah apply to us too. A loving parent will discipline a child when the child has gone astray, but the discipline is in itself an act of love is carried out in order to bless the child. Thomas Goodwin again takes a different picture, this time the picture of a doctor. And he says that a a good doctor will provide and prescribe medical care for a patient even though the patient is a stranger to them. They will still try to ensure that they give the patient the right treatment and prescribe them the right medicines. But then he says, but how much further would the doctor go If the patient was their own child, they would go so much further than just prescribing treatments. They would be caring for them, nursing them around the clock because they're family, because they are their own flesh and blood. So flesh and blood takes us to the second picture then, which is we are his because we are his body. Now, if a part of your body has a disease, you may hate the disease, but you will not hate the body. You will do whatever is needed to remove the disease from the body because you love the body, you care for the body, you want to protect it and take care of it. Sometimes that process might be painful. Physical therapy say your leg was injured, you needed physical therapy well, that physical therapy might well be painful. But the fact that you're inflicting that pain on your leg does not mean that you hate your leg. No, you're putting it through the pain in order to make it whole again, in order to make it strong again. Sometimes God brings painful discipline to a part of his body. Sometimes painful discipline might come to an area of our lives. But that doesn't mean that God has ceased to love us. It is because he loves his body and wants it to be whole and strong. And thirdly, we are his because we are in Christ. And in two places in the Gospels, God makes audible statements that Jesus is his beloved son. And we are in Christ. Paul again says that we have been seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. That is our position now. And that means that the same love that God has expressed for Jesus is the love that he expresses for us. Jesus himself makes that point at the end of his life on the earth when he is praying for his disciples and for all the believers. In John chapter 17 and verse 22, Jesus prays that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, making that point that just as he is in the father that we are in him just that as the father has loved him so that same love will be shown to us that that same love will be in us so god can no more cease to love us than to cease to love his own son so then let's take the lessons of this passage Firstly, that we guard our hearts so that we do not fall into the trap of chasing after idols, mimicking the sinful behaviors of the culture around us, adopting its values, adopting its practices, compromising with that culture so that our love for God is lessened. But secondly, to remember that even in those times when we feel we've become distant from God, even in those times when we may feel like we've stumbled, we've gone astray, maybe even in those times when we become conscious of the discipline of God coming upon us, to remember that his love for us has not changed. That It is as it is expressed in those passages. That his heart yearns for us, that his compassion is warm and tender. That the love that he has for his son Jesus is the same love that he has for us. That his heart still yearns for us because we are his. So I think it would be good just to finish by singing once again of the love that God has for us, of the love that we have for him, of expressing that of expressing our thankfulness and expressing our ongoing desire to love him and to know him and to follow him. It would be great just to sing once more in response to this.